0: Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe
1: on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill.
0: Good morning. Welcome to Talk Back Gardening this Saturday morning. Good morning, John Lamb.
1: Good morning, Deb. It's trying hard to rain at the moment here in Adelaide. We haven't had very much. Some of the country areas have had reasonable falls and I think a lot of people were looking for next Tuesday to see whether we do get that inch of rain that we desperately need.
0: I hope so. Fingers and toes crossed for that event and um, certainly the weather Bureau think it might happen so let's hope it certainly does. Yes
1: the following Tuesday I think uh, also there's another system coming through so it must be interesting to see whether that one also materialates. But anyway the important thing is there's a lot of showers coming through between now and the end of August at a time when the fruit trees, uh, stone fruit trees are starting to the buds are starting to swell up and we could be in for a, a spots and rots season so we need to take a look at that later in the program and then we also very shortly will talk to a microbiologist a soil microbiologist about fertilizers not from our point of view but from the plant's point of view and uh, our guest will be dr Huey Stroer.
0: Can't wait to get down in the dirt with Dr. Yui and find out what is going on when we fertilise our plants. If you have a fertiliser question you would like uh, Yui to answer, then call now please, 1300 222 As always any comments you'd like to make are welcome uh, on 0467 922 I will have an ABC Organic Gardener magazine to give away a little bit later in the program, so keep those two numbers very handy. But uh, I think Right now, it's time to talk fertiliser, John. Selecting a fertiliser
1: for the garden can be a little bit confusing. There's soluble fertilisers, liquid fertilisers. You can buy it in powdered form and granular form. Then there's all of the organic pellets and liquids. And then even now in the last few years, there's been some interesting uh, plant stimulants and soil stimulants. And somebody has been involved, particularly with the latter, of the plant stimulants and, and the soil stimulants is Dr. Dr. Yui He's a consulting microbiologist and he's been involved in South Australia for quite some time in developing some new uh, products which are coming onto the market from a gardening point of view. But let me say good morning to you, Dr. U.E. Strower.
2: Good morning, John.
1: How are you? Well, I'm cold, but well. I
2: should also say good morning to Deb, sorry.
0: (laughs) Good morning, Yui. Great to have you aboard.
1: If you look at the gardens, uh, you can see that there's a lot of winter yellows out there. Uh, the leaves are just uh, pale and I often recommend at this time of the year that people put on a soluble fertiliser and emphasise it's a soluble fertiliser, not a liquid fertiliser. So let's start our discussion with what's the difference between a soluble fertiliser and a liquid fertiliser?
2: Well I guess you know when you're looking at a soluble fertiliser, you're looking at a fertiliser where the nutrients for the plants are really readily available so they, they can be taken up by the plant in the form that they're found in the fertilizer so they're often what we call uh, uh, salts so salts of a nitrogen compound or potassium or phosphate type compound so it's when you're looking for a liquid fertilizer they tend to be slightly different a liquid fertilizer can also still contain quite a lot of uh insoluble material you could in theory take a uh, a large uh, amount of cow manure or horse manure and put it in a hessian bag and you know mix it in some water and that would make a liquid fertilizer but that isn't necessarily a fertilizer that the plants can take up straight away It'd Uh, probably take a week or two for those plants to have access to those nutrients.
1: All right so a soluble fertilizer goes in through the leaf whereas perhaps would I be right in saying a liquid fertilizer is more likely to go in through the roots?
2: Well the liquid liquid or the soluble fertilizer some can go in through the leaves. Uh, especially those micronutrients, so when you 're starting to look at things like iron and manganese and those sorts of things, they can be taken up by a soluble fertilizer or foliar fertilizer in the into the leaves it 's much more difficult to get sufficient nitrogen and phosphate and potassium into the leaves because you need so much that the leaf can 't really take that sort of material up in a in a manner or in a, in a sufficient quantity so really when you 're looking at it, you can you know, use your leaves to take up the micronutrients, but for those macronutrients, you still need to do that via the root system. And so, you know, whether are using a liquid or a, a a soluble fertilizer, the roots still play a really important role in taking up those uh, nutrients.
1: There are lots of different kind of fertilizers out there, as I mentioned, whether they're granular and in powder or traditional or organic. Let's look at it from a plant's point of view. There's the plant's roots, and it's got its little uh, uh, roots growing How does the fertiliser get into the plant?
2: Well, that's a very good question. I I guess, you know, what what we really have to think about is how the roots can take things up, and there's a a limit on the size of the material it takes up. You've got to think about a plant cell, which is uh, what makes up the roots, and that's surrounded by a membrane, and that membrane is designed to basically keep the, the cell intact. But because you have this membrane, you also can't take up things that are very large. Only small things go across. So what has to happen is the nutrients that you put on need to be small enough to be able to be taken up. So things like uh, phosphate salts or nitrogen salts and these sorts of things can be taken up. But, for example, a plant can't take up, uh, say, a piece of organic material. That first needs to be broken down by the soil microbes in order to be taken up. So that's a, that's a limitation and that's one of the reasons why the soluble fertilisers work very quickly and the other types of fertilisers work slowly and over a longer period of time because they slowly get broken down by those soil bacteria and fungi into a size that the plants can then take
1: up. Yes, we're talking to Dr. Yui Stroha, who's a consulting microbiologist here in South Australia, and a fascinating discussion on how does a plant actually take in its nutrients and what does that mean from a home gardening point of view. And you're happy to take questions if anybody wants sure, to ask certainly. you a question, Dr. Yui.
0: If you'd like to do it, we've only got Yui for a while, so please call in now, one 300 Eight nine one if you'd like to talk to Yui.
1: So what you're suggesting is that uh, uh, from a plant's roots point of view, the fertilizer has got to be in a form that the actual roots can actually take it in. It can't take in chunks it's got to be in a soluble form and in a particular uh, type of a form that the, can go in through the roots the cells of the roots. Uh, so uh, you've got uh, your fertilizers. How do the fertilisers, which are chunky, whether they're powder or uh, they're little pieces of, of nutrition, how does that fertiliser get converted into what is termed a plant-available form?
2: Well, so what, what basically happens is for, the, for a lot of the, uh, the chemical fertilisers, uh, the, the powdery type fertilisers, a lot of those are qu- quite soluble, so they're not they 're not already in a soluble format, but they solubilise very, very quickly once you you get sufficient water into the soil. Um, you have to remember that you know the the actual nutrients you put down they actually still have to besides being small enough to enter the cells or into the roots, they also need to actually get there so that can only happen if they travel along water so you know there is a, there's a, an, a couple of other issues, but when you then start to look at larger types of fertilisers, especially the organic type fertilisers. What happens there is you've got large organic material and the microbes in the soil, they go to work on that material, a lot like your compost. Uh, You know, your compost starts off being very big and it slowly gets smaller and smaller and that's just those soil microbes breaking things down into smaller and smaller particles and then eventually they get to a size where the uh, nutrients that are trapped in that organic material is in a format that the plants can then take up. So that's really, that's really how it, it happens. But could,
1: could you explain just a bit more about, uh, you say, the microbes go to work. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, there's the organic fertilizer. They're munching it up and, 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 and doing whatever they do. So what do they do uh, to change <laughs> it from uh, organic material into a plant-available form?
2: So basically what they do is they secrete a whole range of well, what we call enzymes. So it, it works exactly the same uh, as it does in our own intestines. So basically there's a, a range of enzymes that get secreted by different types of microbes and they then take these large material and they cleave off uh, pieces off of that large material. So they basically chop it up and that's really the way in which, in which that material becomes available and that, that's one of the reasons why it's really important to have a lot of different types of microbes because each microbe can only do a certain job and so it's really a, a case of taking that organic material, organic material apart and these different microbes then do that and then that becomes available for the plants to use.
1: Would it be right to say the more microbes in the soil you've got, the better?
2: Exactly. The more you have and the more diversity you have, the the quicker and the more complete your breakdown is, which means you make more of those nutrients bioavailable for your plants. Exactly.
1: You've been busy developing new products for home gardeners, and they come under the firm not so much of, of, I mean, you're developing fertilisers, but a, a soil stimulant, and a plant stimulant. So how does a a, a soil or plant stimulant differ from a fertiliser?
2: So, Okay, so the idea behind a a plant stimulant is to actually provide the plant with um, some other compounds. Basically, a lot of the plant stimulants contain growth factors. So uh, plants, just like us, have a, a series of hormones, and that regulates how they grow. So when you start to put a plant stimulant on, what you're doing is you're starting to stimulate the plant to produce roots a really good example is for example a rooting powder or these rooting gels they have a hormone in it that actually encourages the plants to make roots so when you put a plant stimulant on what you end up with is you end up stimulating the plant to make roots now in conditions like we have now we are just starting to approach spring you, you want to s- sort of think about well if i want to establish my seedlings how can I establish my seedlings as quickly as possible? One way is to put these plant stimulants on so they grow roots quicker, which means they are more prepared for, say, a a hot spell that will come within the next probably eight weeks or so, knowing where the weather's been going. So with a a soil stimulant, is slightly different. What it does, it it sort of overlaps a little bit, but the soil stimulant also stimulates the soil microbes or inoculates the, the soil with additional microbes. So they they vary really by uh, what they do. So a plant stimulant stimulates the plant and a soil stimulant really stimulates that soil microbiology together with the plants.
1: That's fascinating and we'll come back to uh, uh, some of the products that people know, you know, the the seaweed type products and you've Mm -hmm. been developing composty type of uh, products uh, and Manures and things like that, but I think Deb, uh, we've got a question or two. We
0: have indeed. If you've got a question for our special guest, consulting microbiologist Dr. Yui Stroer, now is the time to call one three hundred triple two eight nine one We'll come to Andrew and Graham next. Talk back gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe
1: on ABC Radio, Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill.
0: We have a special guest with us on that Talkback Gardening this morning, Dr. Yui Stroer, consulting microbiologist. Now, Andrew, at Mile End, you are up first. What's your question for Yui? Uh, good morning, Pamela. I have a uh,
1: avocado tree, and it's the miniature rootstock, uh, flying dragon, I believe. This tree is big. It's at least seven metres tall and possibly nearly three, three and a half metres wide, halfway up. Uh, last season, Dr. Yui, it bloomed but didn't retain any flowers. And I've got one fruit on it from about 30 the previous season. Yeah, Dr. Yui, I'm not healthy. too sure whether you're a plant pathologist yeah. as well. Are you familiar with the hormones and the obsession layer in, in the in the flowers? Do you want to yeah. talk? Okay. Yeah, uh, take it away then.
2: So I guess you know there's, a, there's a, a few things that we need to think about when we... Uh, when we're trying to look especially at things like retaining flowers. So it's obviously bloomed, but it, it dropped its blooms afterwards. And, and that can be a, an, an issue with a, a number of things. Uh, the most common one from a nutrient perspective is often a, a lack of enough potassium. Uh, you know, a lot of people think potassium is what makes plants flower. Per se, it doesn't actually make plants flower. What it allows the plants to do, it allows the plants to retain the flowers so they become more uh, resilient, so to speak. So... It could be that you're actually suffering a little bit from a potassium deficiency. So, look for a fertilizer that's got a high level of potassium. So that that'll be K on the on the bag, and that will often help uh, to re- maintain those uh, flowers on the plant.
0: Thanks very much, Andrew Graham at Lewiston. Good morning.
2: Yes, good morning. <coughs> um, I make my own liquid fertilizers. I do a a weed tea and a chook
1: poo fertilizer.
2: And uh, I'm just wondering whether or not uh, they're suitable for uh, using as a foliar fertiliser, and also, can they be mixed together? Yes. Yeah, so it, generally, you can use them as a foliar spray. In, in particular, your, your, your chicken chicken poo is a is a really really good source of nutrients. Um, you're probably feeding your chickens lots of different things, including uh, maybe even a, a balanced diet that you can buy from the feed stores. And what happens there is that the, those balanced diets for chickens contain all of those micronutrients in that diet. And some of that obviously comes out with the chicken droppings. So when you then make that, uh, that liquid uh, tea or, or li- uh, compost that you're, you're making, you can then just spray that onto your, onto your plants. Just be a little bit careful that you don't use it too concentrated uh, because sometimes the chicken manure can have quite a high level of nitrogen and ammonia, and so that can burn... Delicate leaves, but yes, you can certainly use that as a as
1: a foliar spray. Tea with the uh, chicken manure. Yes.
2: Yep. Yeah, yep. No the problem. Weed tea, the wheat tea is fantastic. Yep.
0: Great. Thank you very much, Graham. Interesting question, Jennifer at Parrafield Gardens. You've got to the ear of Dr. Yui Stroer. Hi. Oh, thank you so much for taking my call. Look, I have a
2: Japanese um, uh, mandarin and. I've thrown some granulated fertiliser around it quite a long time ago. It's still got yellow leaves and then I've been putting on once a fortnight this seaweed, that premium seaweed fertiliser. That's still not doing anything. And I do have powdered chicken um, manure that i bought from out here, north out power field somewhere. And I've got that dynamic lifter that I haven't used. And I've got some um, uh, pea straw ready to put on it, it, but I thought because it's winter, I wouldn't do that until the summer. So what am I supposed to be doing? It's still yellow. Yes, yeah, so the yellowing of of, uh, of citrus is really really common, especially this time of the year, because the nutrient uptake is is quite slow as you can imagine. But look, persist, I, I think you, you're doing all the right things. Certainly, you know, your dynamic lifter or your, your chicken manure, you can put that around your, your plants now. Uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, feeding gently but feeding often. Um, so there's no, no problems at all with that. Now, you know, when the leaves go yellow on citrus, it's often an iron deficiency. Citrus loves iron. So, you know, it might be worth going to your hardware store and just... Um, finding some of these little packets of micronutrients. They often have specific ones for citrus, mixing that in with some water and watering that around the the plant. Remembering that citrus um, roots tend to be quite shallow and so they really only go out to where the leaves are. So it's just underneath the canopy there and that will hopefully over the next few weeks allow those leaves to go from being yellow back to being green but continue to use what you have. And I think as soon as it starts to get warmer, Think about putting mulch out. You can not really, uh, you know, you want to trap as much of that soil moisture as possible. We're not going to have a lot of rain this year again, unfortunately, but yes, put, put the mulch out, uh, you know, early spring or middle spring. So wait maybe another six weeks before you mulch around it.
0: Thanks, Jennifer. Hopefully you'll have lovely mandarins eventually. Uh, John is at Flinders Park. Good morning.
2: Good morning, uh, everyone. Uh, Dr. Uvi, I would like to ask you, the uh, chicken poo pellets uh, uh, of, um, that the manufacturer in South Australia makes, uh, how long is the storage time uh, of these pellets, if left in the, in, in the bag, do they degrade in, in the bag uh, unopened? Now, the, sto- the storage time on those pellets is, is years, in fact. So uh, even the microbes that are in those pellets, because all of, those, all of the organic pellets... Um, whether they come from the company in South Australia or somewhere else, uh, they all contain microbes in them anyway. And a lot of those microbes are very, very hardy. They basically go to sleep if they're not being put out with moisture into your garden. So there's no problems. You can use a bag that's five years old. Uh, The nutrients don't really get lost as easily out of the bag. You lose a little bit of nitrogen because nitrogen is quite uh, volatile. So the the n N number might go down fractionally, but all the other nutrients are very, very stable. So feel free to use that, you know, years down the track.
1: Yes, it's fascinating. Dr. Huey was brought into South Australia to work with one of the major uh, companies that uh, produce organic fertilisers and he's been instrumental in uh, looking at uh, how you can actually get the composts in in particular and and, uh, distill them, I suppose, and and put them into a form that you can put them in a little bottle (laughs) and you can spray them onto your plants or put them onto your soils and you get some interesting uh, names out there, there are things such as go-go juice and sea <laughs> and things like that and I think uh, uh, Dr. Huey's had a fair bit to do with that.
0: We'll come back to your questions in just a moment. Our special guest today is Dr. Huey Stroh, a consulting microbiologist looking at fertiliser from a plant's perspective, John, getting down into the dirt and we'll come back to Huey in a, just a short while. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide South Australia and Broken Hill We are Talk Back Gardening Our topic at the moment is looking at fertiliser from the plant's perspective, what's actually going on in the ground Jackie in Gummaracca Hi Jackie. Yes, good morning Years ago a lady in Sydney called Esther Dean wrote a book about comfrey tea uh, for the vegetable garden and I've been using this for a while. I'm just wondering what the gentleman feels about the
2: benefits of comfrey tea yeah, so I, I think you know all, all of these types of teas um, can be quite beneficial their, their main role in, in a lot of these sort of uh, comfrey teas and other types of teas is really less about nutrition and more about stimulating those cell microbes that's that 's what a lot of these uh, types of teas do because you have to think about when you make a tea you 're really extracting very little in the way of nutrients, but they do extract a lot of stimulants out of uh, these plants they can also then help to stimulate your, your soil microbes as well as your plants itself but you know if you're doing it on a um, on a vegetable patch and that sort of thing always remember that when you actually harvest those vegetables those nutrients have now left your soil and you need to replace them so yeah.
0: okay thanks Jackie and our last caller this morning Pam at Middleton good morning
2: good morning far away there
1: Pam yeah. you yeah. Your turn.
2: Yes, right, thank you. Um, I'm just ringing up about liquid fertiliser. I get liquid fertiliser from my compost. i got one of these drum roll ones. I keep turning and I got liquid fertiliser from there. Is that sufficient to put on or do I add potassium or any other um, fertiliser on vegetables? I'm doing vegetables. Okay, yes, yeah, so so the the uh, issue is similar to what the, the previous uh, caller spoke about is when you your your compost because of the sort of materials you put into your compost generally which would I imagine is things like your lawn clippings, your vegetable peelings uh, all the sort of garden waste that you got, you have to remember that that is actually quite nutrient poor so you should really especially for vegetables think about topping it up with uh, an organic uh, pelletized uh, fertilizer maybe some or even dig in your own chicken manure if you can get it. That's really you know you want to you want to top up um, the compost uh, teas or the compost liquids. Uh, as they always say in our know, compost, uh, feed the the soil. Where fertilisers feed the plants.
1: Okay. Could we also take a quick look at worm juice, Dr. Huey? What's yep. what's in that in terms of nutrient?
2: So again, uh, worm juice is because it's an extract. It can be quite nutrient poor. But the interesting thing is uh, we only recently did a a really interesting study looking at, at worm juice and worm juice has an enormous number of different bacteria and fungi in it. So it's actually a really, really good uh, soil inoculant or soil probiotic. So certainly worm juice is, uh, is something you should be using. My mother-in-law absolutely swears by it and she has the most magnificent plants in the entire uh, lifestyle village she lives in so, and she does her own worm tea so, right. yes, we'll is, we're, it's, it's
1: great. We're, we're finish up by just summarizing and saying, okay, from a plant's point of view, uh, um the plant can take in nutrients, but it's also very important to stimulate the soil microbes. And probably uh, most people would be very familiar with uh, the seaweed products. And then there's you know the the sea salts and there's mm-hmm. the, the sea munguses. Um, and could you? And, and I keep on sort of saying, look, these are not a fertilizer; they're a plant stimulant. Could you again just uh, explain how those kind of products will benefit the plant? via the little microbes in the soil
2: yeah so you know seaweed is, is, has quite remarkable properties and uh, you know we, a lot of us are still trying to get our head around exactly what what some of those properties are one of the big properties that seaweed seems to have is it contains a few of the really critical plant uh, hormones called auxins and cytokines and these are involved in both root development and in shoot growth so uh, seaweeds have them in it but the other thing seaweed has it has um, it has a lot of those sort of micronutrients that are really lacking in Australian soil, things like iodine, selenium. So because Australian soils are really poor in those, because it's a very old country, the soils are badly leached over billions of years, seaweeds really do a good job there. And there also seems to be some stimulatory effect on seaweeds to give you drought and uh, Um, frost resistance or tolerance and that has to do in part because of the way plants after being given seaweeds hold water. The plant actually becomes more filled with water itself and so that obviously means it takes longer for that plant to freeze so it gives you some frost resistance but also takes the plant slightly longer to dry out so you get some drought tolerance. So seaweeds do work in in many mysterious ways and uh, there does seem to also be some seaweed products that stimulate the soil fungi as well. So they're they're all around uh, pretty good to use.
1: It's a fascinating little world out there, Dr. Huey, and uh, we have known for many, many millenniums, not millenniums, but a long time, the importance of compost and what's going on in the compost is now being uh, taken apart from a scientific point of view and understanding uh, just exactly what's in the compost. What's, why is it that organic is so good? Why does Sophie Thompson on Sunday morning get so excited about the importance? Importance of uh, uh, putting organic material in the soil, and the Doctor Hueys of this world are uh, busy ex- uh, examining and reviewing and experimenting and coming up with the answers. Doctor Huey, thank you very much for your contribution this morning.
2: Not a problem at all. And I apologise about my phone. There, it's
0: um, yeah. No, that's okay. <laughs> it's it's one of modern life's little annoyances. <laughs> but thanks, Doctor Huey. We really appreciate you joining us.
2: Not a problem. Thank you very much. Thank Bye-bye. you.
0: Consulting microbiologist, Dr. Yui Strower. very interesting indeed. We're straight back into um, our normal talkback gardening with John Lamb. If you would like to get some advice, call right now. You'll get straight through on 1300 222 First person in our general talkback is Andrew at Surrey Downs. Andrew, you've got a soil pH
1: query. Yeah, good morning. Look, um, one of the things I was interested to hear whether he had the... Uh, could comment on uh, how soil pH affects the mycorrhizae, bacteria, et cetera, nutrient uptake. Because we know that if you don't have a good, the right kind of pH, then you, you're lacking the uptake of certain nutrients. And uh, uh, yeah, and how compost buffers that we know if you use compost, it acts like a buffer and it helps even out the pH and makes more stuff available. But the other thing I was, sort of, without, I was going to make commenting on was that I've got some potted citrus, and when they go yellow, I found by giving them a, little, a nice water, a nice warm water, drink that it, it sort of heats the soil up a little bit and it helps to take up the nitrogen and other nutrients better and they actually look a lot greener during winter. Yes that's some interesting comments there Andrew and certainly in terms of uh, soil warmth uh, when temperatures get below about 10 degrees in the soil there's not much root activity by putting uh, lukewarm water onto the soil you can actually increase the soil just a little bit and there's more nutrient uptake at that particular stage. Uh, yeah, interesting comments.
0: Thanks very much, Andrew. Uh, Pauline is at Wilmington now. What's going on with your citrus, Pauline? Oh, we're having uh, a good morning. We're having trouble with uh, a one mandarin tree and an orange
2: tree. they both uh, the fruit has mould, like what? a black sooty
1: on the leaves.
2: Oh no, on the fruit.
1: On the fruit itself. Any, yes. on, any on the leaves?
2: On the leaves as well. Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay, that's sooty mould. Uh, yep, that's a fungus. Mm. And it's caused because you've got sap sucking insects on your citrus tree and I would presume if it's there at the moment, it's probably scale. If you look carefully, you'll find on the backs of the leaves in particular and on the uh, uh, stems of the branches, you'll probably find that there are little scales, like uh, minute little fingernails. Uh, yes. we,
2: we did notice that we had it. were invaded with bull ants at one stage. <laughs> okay. Would well, that be anything to do with
1: uh, no, it? The bull ants, I don't think, are probably much of the problem, but there'll be other ants. Uh, There are smaller ants, uh, and they actually farm the scale. And beneath that little scale, that little lid you can see, that's the lid of the scale, there are little... what they call crawlers, little uh, sapsuckers. When they're mature they don't move but the little baby ones they move around and uh, the ants will actually move uh, the crawlers from one leaf to another and from one branch to another. So controlling your scale is a very important part of the program Uh, and the best way of doing that is getting a horticultural glue strip. These are little bands you put around the trunk of the tree and the ants get uh, caught up in the glue. So if you can stop the ants, you reduce the spread. In the meantime, you probably need to spray the tree with a horticultural oil, a horticultural oil, not a winter oil. And if you spray the tree now, that will suffocate the scales that are there. Um, And it would be important if you've had a, a a significant problem, I would be in about the middle of October, put on another horticultural oil spray. That'll be when the little crawlers are uh, moving around, and uh, I think if you put on a spray then, uh, that should overcome the problem. Once you get rid of the scale, uh, the sooty mould on the leaves will just wash off and they won't return. But right. so long as you've got the scale there, they're exuding sticky material, which uh, allows the, ska- the sooty mould to just continue.
2: Oh, thank you very much. Sir. The spray doesn't affect the fruit.
0: No, not at all.
2: No. All right. Well, thank
0: you very much for that. Thank you, Pauline, for the call. Roman, and now are you in Kidman Park, Roman? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. What's your question? Um, I might have missed... It might have come up in the early part of the program, which I missed, but in relation to
1: concentrations uh, for application, be it sea soil or fertiliser, be it slow release or whatever, how important is it to stay with whatever's recommended by the product. Oh, Tremendously and- important, yes. Um, not so much uh, with your seaweed product, because, uh, uh, but with the fertilisers, with a lot of the fertilisers, uh, they are concentrated, particularly the manufactured fertilisers. They're manufactured and they're in a form of a salt and it's like uh, you are putting on a little bit of salt on your uh, your steak you know and it tastes good but if you put on a tablespoonful um, you'll find it doesn't taste very good and you put on a cupful and you'll make yourself very sick and the same thing happens from a plants point of view well with the slow release the granular stuff if you put that spread it and then only apply a small amount of water one day and then a small amount of water the next day is that sort of balance it out or not? Uh, these slow-release fertilisers, that's real smart technology. Um, no matter how much water you put on, uh, the amount of nutrient that comes out of those little prills is controlled not by water but by temperature. And so uh, as we get warmer, the, the rate of uh, release of nutrients from those little prills is 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 increased, but also you find the plant activity is increased at that stage, so it needs more fertilizer. So you put on your slow release fertilizer, and it's too cold for the nutrients to come out. But in the middle of summer, uh, those little prills are uh, exuding their nutrients very rapidly, and so uh, it's, it's an ideal form of fertilizing plants, particularly plants in containers. It's very easy to put on too much fertilizer; you burn yeah. the roots, you cause problems. Okay. Whereas a slow-release fertilizer, it, it's it, well, it's it's controlled. It's it's a controlled-release fertilizer. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's good.
0: Thanks very much. Thank you, Roman. A Stuart in Kingston in the southeast, and you think you've got some beetle bothering you, Stuart?
2: Yes, that's correct, Deb. I think it's the carpopolis beetle.
1: Well, not this time of the year, surely.
0: <laughs> no, 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 this was last
2: year. Oh, okay, righto. And yep, sure. I'd want to get on top of it and yes. make sure it's... Uh, well, I don't really know what to do with it. They only uh, say a catch and destroy... Uh, the things I find to to do that are for orchards and not sort of the, the home gardener.
1: Yeah, from a home gardening point of view, hygiene, simple hygiene. Soon as you see that there are fruits falling on the ground, pick them up because that's where they start. Uh, they start on the ground, they feed on that and then they... Uh, um, fly into the fruit and then if there's damaged fruit on the tree they'll start uh, uh, problems there and they carry fungal disease on uh, their, uh, their little end of their legs and, and they spread fungal diseases particularly brown rot. So simply picking up the fruit very uh, early in the season and continuing to do that if we get uh, heavy rain and we get uh, your fruits go rotten picking the fruit off uh, the rotten fruit off the tree and removing that uh, you shouldn't have a problem. It's, it's, okay. it's, it's very very simple. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think maybe we did the wrong thing. We were picking or we raking all the old fruit up and that that fell off the tree, but we didn't actually put it. Only sort of put it ten meters away.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> a, yeah, no, 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 no you need that. to make sure that they can't have a feed on it. But uh, okay, yeah, so uh, hygiene is is remove is it completely. Sure thing.
0: Thank okay, you for the cool. call. Thanks, Thanks. to Stuart. Uh, Tony is in Port Norlunga. Bit of sad news, your passion fruit spit the dust, has it, Tony?
2: It did, it did. Um,
1: the passion fruit, it's growing above a retaining wall in a bed that was prepared for it. It's on a, a, a wire trellis area and it grew prolifically for four or five years, lots of fruit. And then last year it turned up its toes and just died. So I've pulled it out and I'd like to know if I can put another passion fruit in the same place. I wouldn't do it without improving the soil or changing the soil. And that's very easy to do. Just take uh, uh, two or three bucket loads. So you're taking about uh, uh, probably 30 litres of soil from where the passion fruit was growing, throw that away on somewhere else in the garden... It won't hurt anything else in the garden. And bring in some soil from somewhere else in the garden. The better the soil, the better. And put it back in the hole. Uh, Mm -hmm. Add some compost, a bag of compost into the uh, planting hole and away you go again.
0: Fine. Thank you. Quite easy. Easy done. Thanks, Tony, for the call. Sue at Summerton. About a rose. Hello, Sue.
2: (coughs) Oh, Good morning. Um, We've pruned our roses back by a third but we've still got a huge
0: amount of leaves on them. Should we
1: be pruning them back further? Uh, Well, it depends on the vigour. If you're getting a a very vigorous uh, uh, rose and if you prune it back very hard, it will continue to be a vigorous rose. On the other hand, if it's not putting on much growth, if you cut it hard, it'll stimulate it into new growth. Um, So the important thing is uh, um, you want a reasonable amount of growth. And so if you've cut it back by about a third, uh, I would then just look at it and say, do I need to take out a few of the branches in the middle to get more light into the middle of the branch? And if there are any little weak branches, take those off and I think just stand back. Then observe. You'll find that if you find that in the growing season ahead, it it, it continues to be vigorous, over-vigorous, you just reduce them out, you prune off next year. Uh, if, on the other hand, uh, you're not getting very much new growth, well, then you prune it a little harder.
0: Uh, well, they were
2: beautiful last year. Okay, well, I think just keep on
1: doing what you're doing there, right, I think the, so. the
2: leaves, no problem. It's just that normally no. they've dropped everything. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, there's
1: problem. lots of leaves there. And we're going to get showery weather and we'll get a black spot on it. So I would be saying that if you value your roses and they've still got leaves on it, spray the leaves now or in the next couple of weeks with a copper spray to reduce the carryover from winter into spring.
0: All right, thank you very much. <coughs> Sue from Summerton, farewell. Say hello to Blythe at West Lakes who wants some help in pruning an apricot tree. Hi, Blythe.
2: Hi. I've sent through some pictures. Um, one, one branch has got badly gumnosis or something. I was wondering whether I should take it out.
1: Sorry, I can't see the. Pictures no, you're going to have to describe well. it to yeah. uh, to John. <clears throat> Life. That, that's the dilemma in the fact that uh, okay, I can't see sometimes the pictures very 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 well. But more importantly, listeners can't see the pictures, and I believe that's what talkback gardening is about. Uh, the listeners' questions and that they can describe it, but they can't see pictures, and that's why I'm a little bit anti uh, the new technology in terms All right. of that. But okay, so you've got uh, you say apricots and it's got yeah. dieback. Well, yeah, well, I, it did have dieback. Last year I took out one middle branch and that, the the rest of that branch has got a lot of gum coming out of it. Is it a young tree or very old? Oh, it's uh, oh, 15, 20 years old. Right. Well, I'd suggest <laughs> that you probably do have uh, um, uh, Eutipa or Gamosis. Um, you can try and uh, keep it growing in... A healthy state, make sure that you mulch your water regularly and you'd fertilise and probably in the next couple of weeks putting on a, a good uh, organic fertiliser and then early in September mulching the area, see if you can't get it back into growth. In the meantime, uh, cut out Uh, Don't do it yet Wait until after flowering Don't prune it at all Don't cut off anything at this stage You'll aggravate the problem Uh, But if you wait until after flowering And there's new growth If you want to prune or reshape Do it then When the likelihood of more fungal spores uh, Getting into the cuts that uh, you make uh, Will be minimal Right Yeah Well, I I, I have pruned it for this year. Okay. Well, put on a copper spray. Uh, That might be the best thing you can do. That might uh, uh, just make you feel a little bit happier and maybe reduce the incidence of the spots that are floating around. But try and get your tree back into good health. And if it grows away from the disease, you're ahead. If the disease continues to affect the tree, I would remove it next year.
0: Hope it uh, revives itself, Blythe, with your care. Thank you very much for the call. A couple of issues to raise with you, John. One is Jennifer's question. She rang uh, a couple of weeks ago about something that looked a lot like a gall wasp on her callistemon. Yes. And... Uh, sent through some photos in fact and you were going to go and do a little bit of investigation on that.
1: Fascinating yes, she was describing what uh, sounded like citrus gall wasp but I said that's a calistamine, a calistamin can't have a citrus gall wasp because the citrus gall wasp is specific to citrus but I've discovered that there are a lot of gall wasps out there specific to native plants and uh, there are uh, wasps, gall wasps that are native to, uh, specific to uh, Callistemon, and so it would appear that Jennifer did have a gall wasp and we're actually uh, having a tract uh, uh, somebody that, uh, and, and I'm indebted to Greg Baker, entomologist with SARDI, for <laughs> looking at the photos and saying, John, that's a gall wasp, uh, but it's not a citrus gall wasp, uh, and uh, we'll find out exactly just what its name is, and uh, I'll learn a lot more about uh, gall wasps on our native plants. But Jennifer, thank you very much, and because it's fascinating, she sent in some lovely images, and we'll publish those in next week's Good Gardening uh, newsletter, and uh, in terms of what to do... Uh, a story for another day. So
0: make sure that you subscribe to John Lamb's Good Gardening newsletter. Simply type that into your search engine and sign up and you'll get it in your inbox every Friday morning. Now, John, we are coming into some um, wet and frosty weather, yet we're also seeing the buds looking like they're getting ready to burst on our stone fruit trees. Yes,
1: when you get a combination of showery weather and cool weather, uh, that's a recipe for spots and rots. The f- curl leaf fungus, which attacks the nectarines and uh, and, and peaches in particular, uh, it's very sensitive to temperature. Doesn't do much uh, under 10 degrees, but between 10 degrees and 20 degrees, it takes off. Now, if you get um, warm weather, the actual leaves uh, of of the plants, as they come out, they'll grow away from the fungus. But when we get cold weather and showery weather, the fungus spores land on the uh, buds as they open up. And they sit on the new leaves as they emerge. And as fast as they grow, they get attacked by the by the fungus. And so you get all these distorted leaves. And I think this is going to be one of those seasons where we're going to get a lot of showery weather between now and the end of August as the uh, stone fruit star- buds start to burst open. And if you want to minimise the likelihood of fungal diseases, putting on a fungal spray, copper uh, liquid copper, by far the best then copper hydroxide is better than copper oxychloride, but put them on a sp- copper spray, but it needs if we want to be if it to be effective, it needs to be put on before the buds open
0: so now's the time, really, yep, yep.
1: Not this weekend, but if you can do it during the week, we're going to get, uh, uh, oh, Sunday might be a reasonable day for doing that if you possibly can.
0: Mm, okay, thank you very much. I've got an ABC Organic Gardener magazine to give away. If you have not won an ABC prize in the last month, then call through on 1300 222 We'll give it to the 10th caller. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe.
1: On ABC Radio
0: Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill. Congratulations to Tanya at Woodchester, who has won that ABC Organic Gardener magazine. Let's head off now to Gawler. Melissa, you want some advice with growing potatoes? Hi, yes I do.
2: Last year we grew um, two varieties of potatoes and then when I was preparing the garden bed this year I found a lot more that we'd obviously missed. So we had a bonus crop sort of there just a couple of weeks ago. Um, So I bought seed potatoes and last year I just planted the seed potatoes and then I actually read the instructions this year and it said we're supposed to cut them up with the eyes like uh, a couple of centimetres long or something. I'm not sure. The one, the sea potatoes that I've got are not shooting their eyes yet, and I'm worried about missing the time when they're supposed to go in the ground. It's before the last frost. But, Righto. Well, let's see yeah. if we
1: can't uh, help there and uh, put you at rest there, Melissa. Uh, certainly, uh, it's important, but not essential, to sprout the... Uh, seed potatoes before you plant them and by sprouting it all you need to do is uh, leave them uh, in good light but not in full sun underneath a tree or under a pergola or somewhere like that and leave them probably for four or five weeks and uh... They, those little eyes will start to produce little sprouts. And when those little sprouts are probably uh, anything from about two centimetres to five centimetres long, you can actually plant them. Don't let the sprouts get too long, uh, otherwise they break off. But uh, in terms of timing, time is on your side. From about now on is a good time for planting uh, tomato, for tomatoes uh, in frost-free areas. The Achilles heel of potatoes is if you uh, put them in the ground, out they come from the ground and the new shoots get knocked off with a frost. So it'll take, if you sprout them and put them in the ground, uh, let's say uh, that'll be the end of August you're planting and by about the middle of September uh, you'll find they're coming out of the ground and at Gawler you should be past your frosty period. So I think uh, you've still got everything going on your side.
2: And, and still cut the actual potato up so that there's an eye or two in each piece? Is Depends on
1: how big they are. You want uh, Ideally, uh, you, you get these little seed potatoes, and they're only sort of little small potatoes, you know, little small round, and they're probably only uh, three or four centimetres uh, uh, wide. Uh, and uh, I'd just put one of those. But if there are a large number of eyes, uh, you can cut them up. You need probably, say, two eyes to a chunk. There's, okay. a, there's a guide.
0: <laughs> Fantastic, thank you so much Thanks Melissa Anita at Fairview Park Now you want to talk about your orange tree
2: Yes, I just picked my last oranges and I would like to know when can I trim that tree a little bit back because I don't want it getting too high it's so awful to get up there with the ladder and what have you I just want it in manageable size
1: Well, you can do that very early in September That would be a good good time. Mm -hmm. Now, bear in mind, if you're going to cut it and reshape it, then uh, you're going to remove a fair amount of the blossom for next year. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, you you either do it then or else you could probably uh, prune it in early autumn. But I would go for doing it this spring. Get the shape right, right? except the fact that you're going to uh, lose some of the fruit and mm-hmm. uh, get it back into shape or, or alternatively you can sort of do half the cutting back this year and cutting uh, cutting uh, and then do the rest of it the next year that way you get uh, uh, you'll reduce some of the size uh, and you still get some fruit and 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 then uh, if you do that and then the next year so you're getting it back into shape over two seasons rather than one
0: all right that's Sounds good. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anita. And our last call this morning comes from Kath in Coromandel Valley. Welcome, Kath.
2: Hi. Um, I really last you, and I had a second question, and it's this. I have a cooch lawn, which has been absolutely beautiful for 14 years, and I've cared for it carefully. But over the last couple of years, because we're on the top of a ridge and the soil is very sandy, I think it's become more and more depleted because there's a huge honey locust tree which gives lovely shade in summer and it's got no leaves in winter. It's perfect, but the lawn's getting very sparse and sparse of using some fungus and um, dynamic fertiliser all the time.
1: And I think what
2: I need to do is to get organic matter into it. But if I top dress it, it will raise the level too much How do I get the sand out of the soil and the compost in?
1: No, I think if you get your compost, and don't put on too much, put on, uh, say, a layer, I oh, know I wouldn't be doing it now, I'd be waiting until uh, well into September before you do it when the plant is in new active growth, and then if you just put, say, um, uh, spread a two centimetre layer over the lawn, and then get uh, a broom, a hard broom, and, and sweep it, and that sweeps uh, the organic matter into where the runners are and the new growth is, and that will break down, and the little microbes will uh, make that into uh, materials which will improve the health of your soil. And if you do that uh, probably three times during the growing season, so do it in September, do it in December, and do it again in early March, and uh, putting on just a little bit of organic matter each time, you'll find that that will build up the organic matter in your soil and improve the health of your lawn. And if
2: I chop the honey locust tree roots off, where they come at the edges of the lawn, will that knock the tree back,
1: or can I do that? Oh no, you can prune that back quite hard. They're pretty vigorous and uh, can be. Uh, uh, you've probably got a, a a root competition problem, but we don't have time to attend a to that one.
0: No, sorry, we've got to the ten o'clock news coming upon us very shortly. John, I learnt a lot about fertilizer today and the difference between it and how it operates in our soil from Dr. Yui Stroer.
1: Yes, very interesting. And people say sometimes, John, why don't you sort of drill down and get some more technical information? Information for those that uh, really would like a little bit of technical information so hope it wasn't too technical but very interesting and until next week good gardening